Greetings to everybody. Thank you for welcoming us into your home. It's quite a privilege to be speaking into your home, probably through a computer or TV. It's very odd, but I'm very excited about the opportunity. So today, I'm going to speaking, be speaking to you about peace. And if I had a title, it's Peace from God, and you'll quickly see why. And it's such an interesting time, and I'm probably going to use that term a little bit today. It is an interesting time because on the heels of Easter, which I would highly encourage you if you didn't listen to last week's message by Clayton, do so. Easter is a high point. Not necessarily as in, you know, it is a special day per se, but it is a high point in terms of the faith because of the certainty that it brings. Christ has risen, and that brings a certainty to everything that we believe, our faith. But on the heels of that certainty, we face probably one of the most uncertain times. So there is a tension that we all are experiencing right now that on the heels of Easter and the certainty of it in terms of the faith, now we are dealing with times of uncertainty. And these are interesting times. And so the question that I've been asking myself, because, see, Christianity is not theory, it is real life. And you, just as much as I, have to grapple with this issue of uncertainty. And there's this tension between certainty and uncertainty, and that's why I wanted to talk about peace today. And just personally, one of the verses from Proverbs that I just have been ruminating about for years, and it's from Proverbs 4.18, and it says this, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And I've been meditating on this verse for years for this particular reason. It talks about a path. And like yourselves, I've had to make decisions in my life for my family. And it's such an interesting concept for me that when it talks about this path, that it's increasingly becoming clear. And you can speak about that in terms of your life, in terms of your decision-making, the road that your life is on, your way of living, making decisions that could either be right or wrong. And I've said it before, and you've probably heard me say this, that I love easy decisions because I don't want to make a wrong decision. And this verse about speaking about the path of the righteous and this path, and it started somewhere. It started at a point in time, and that point in time was your salvation. And that's one of the great things about just thinking and ruminating about Easter. And Jesus' life fulfilled, I think, it, it, there's different estimates, but over 300 prophecies. And, and one of them started in the beginning of his ministry, and it was related to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And it, this is quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. It says, The land of Zebulun... And the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of de death, light has dawned. And this contrast between light and darkness is such, it's very black and white, and I love it because it speaks to the things of the kingdom. And there's a lot of things that actually make sense when you start thinking about light and darkness, one of which is in 1 John 1, verse 5, says, God is light, 
and in him is no darkness at all. And if you were to just take a little bit of time and ruminate and meditate on that verse, I think a lot of your questions about life actually would start to become clear. But the day of your salvation, light dawned in your life. Your entire destiny changed. The path of your life changed. And that's what Matthew, I mean, Proverbs chapter 4 speaks about. Is the path of the righteous is like that first gleam of dawn. But it gets brighter. Your path gets brighter. And as I've been thinking about it in my personal life, and certainly I can think about growing in maturity where my ability to distinguish between right or wrong necessarily improves, and I stay on that path. But the other part of that verse is that it leads to a sure destination. It speaks about the full light of day. And the New King James Version, it actually says it this way, that it shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The perfect day. And as you continue to, as I've meditated on this, and, and we know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, and that's, I like to keep things simple. In Revelations chapter 21, verse 23, it says this, speaking of the new Jerusalem. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. That is the perfect day. And as I've ruminated again about my path, it, there is a destination, and that destination is the heavenlies with him. And it is the perfect day because I cannot be at that point in time. Everything is now clear. There is no shadow. There is no question. There is no temptation. And I actually can't be led astray in the perfect day. And that's my destination. So even apart from the security of my future, I still have to work back to now. Because while I know the end of my path, and it is a glorious end, a most treasured end, in peace, I still live today in the here and now. So let's work back to the here and now. So if you could turn to Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to have you turn to a lot of scriptures, but this one I'm going to have you turn to. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, this is in the prologue. It's an epistle by Paul. And I'm just going to read you one verse. And this verse is almost obscure because it's just in a prologue. And it actually appears in pretty much every epistle that Paul wrote. And in verse 7, it says this, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he almost used the exact same language in every epistle as an introduction, as a prologue to whatever message that he wanted to deliver to the particular church in the particular city. And I found it quite interesting as I reviewed it. If you memorize this verse, you actually get credit for memorizing a, a verse from multiple books. But it's almost obscured because it's just in the introduction. The message actually is to come, but it's the basis and the foundation by which the message can be understood. And you have a calling, and it says you're called to be saints. 
Of course you're beloved. Each of these can be a message in and of itself, and you're called to be saints. And the calling is such a topic of conversation amongst the people of God. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, but if you actually think about what your calling is, it's the vocation or profession in which one customarily engages. That's your calling. And what is that calling? It's to be a saint. And a saint, as we know, is to be holy, set apart. And many people ask about how do they fulfill their call, and I don't think they're thinking about this, just called to be a saint, holy, and set apart. And I would expect they would naturally ask themselves the question, how do I, how do we fulfill this call? That's a great question. And right after this calling, in a sense, it gives you the answer. Again, this is just in the prologue. You could easily just scan through this and not think too much about it. And it says again, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to start, and I really will not emphasize this part of it because so much can be said, but the first three words, grace to you. On the heels of Easter, so easy for me to package all the understanding with respect to that, those three words with all the context that we are on the heels of. Grace is not abstract. God is gracious, and for, for many, that can seem abstract, but it is not. And if I were to emphasize one word in this, it's the second, which is a preposition. There is a thing called grace, and it says grace to you, which means that you are the recipient. You didn't create it. You didn't generate but it's to you as a recipient. And what are you the recipients of? Grace, unmerited favor. And on the heels of Easter, and I'll just leave it at this, his blood was inspected. And it was found sufficient. Grace to you. Fulfilling the call to be a saint. The next words. And peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to spend most of the time talking about peace. Again, if you just look at the preposition, peace from. It is from God, but also ask yourself the question, where? Where is it from? In Revelations chapter 1, verse 4, again, in the prologue, it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's where it's from. See, there's the clear imagery and the reality of the throne room, the third heaven. And for him who is and who was and who is to come, he is seated on his throne. The unchanging, eternal God 
seated on his throne. That's where peace comes from. And sadly, most of you are like myself. I don't have actually any context for a king on his throne. I have none. In my household, I fancy myself a king, and I've told my kids that. But it's not so much about my throne. It's about for them to understand that they aren't the king. But there is a king, and he is on his throne. And the throne is something that, as I said, I have no context for. And all I can understand is from what the word says. And in Proverbs, it speaks about a throne. And it speaks about the one seated on the throne, the king. And his disposition sets the tone for the room. His eyes go to and forth and actually, actually winnows out evil. Everything emanates from the throne, unchecked. And the will of God is uncontested. Of that we know. And everything is settled by his mere presence. In the Old Testament, the first mention of the word peace, shalom, is in Genesis chapter 15. In verse 15 it says, Now as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you should be buried at a good old age. And the context, of course, in this is in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So the first mention of the word peace in the Old Testament, shalom, speaks about the heavenly reward. Excuse me. Thank you, Josh. And that, as I said, is the secure destination that we all have, peace. In the New Testament, the first mention of the word peace is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. And, and if you would turn there, we're going to just spend a little bit of time there. And the context, of course, is the sending out of the 12, which we have some picture in relation to what that means. In verse 11, it says this. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. And stay there till you go out. And you, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. That's the first mention of the word peace in the, in the New Testament. And it speaks of an extension of heaven. 
and it talks about a tangible atmosphere of peace. And I, I find that fascinating, not so much that there is a tangible atmosphere of peace in a home, but that there was a carrier of peace that brought that into a home. Both being true. You see, I, I, I know a young couple, and, you know, they were privileged, they believe, by God to buy a home. And they just committed themselves as best as they knew that it would be used for God's purposes. And I could say a lot more about it, but life happens, as you know. And you can have a lot of conceptions about what that might mean in terms of a home that, in a sense, was to be used for God's purposes. But I think they just learned over time that the greatest use of their home for God's purposes was to give him access to their lives, to their marriage, to their decisions about their kids as Lord of the house. So life just happens. And they just tried to do that. And, and one day a neighbor came over and, and the wife just had tea with her in the morning. And the neighbor sat on their couch and just remarked, you know, I just feel so comfortable, so relaxed, so peaceful. And the wife smiled. And the consequence of that was the neighbor went back home and just redecorated their house. Because what she was picking up in the atmosphere of a house was peace. She thought it's something to do potentially with the way it was decorated, but it certainly wasn't. The couches were worn from kids, marks on the wall from kids doing kids things. Peace. Peace in a home. It's something tangible. See, the peace is presence of the Spirit of God. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody because you know the scriptures. It's just what the Bible says. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and more. Romans 14.17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, chapter 6, Romans 8, verse 6, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. We all know those scriptures. And I suspect in this day, many are asking themselves, how do I actually have this peace? So we have a hindrance, and it's real. These are interesting times. And there is a battleground. It's called your thought life. And yes, you do know that. See, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says this. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. I don't think I would shock you if I were to tell you that 
there are people actually interested in creating anxiety in your life. I'm not going to pull out a soapbox or anything, but I'm just telling you reality because I have a particular keen interest in this just because of the nature of what I do. But there is a very well-known concept in, in persuasion, understanding of how people think and how can I get people to change their perspective. And it's a very simple concept, is whatever you think about is the most important thing in your life. So now you can understand that what you probably have experienced or seen to the degree that you've led it is that if there's one thing that is being dominated in the news cycle 24-7, 365, they would like it to be 365, is corona, corona, corona. Every image is designed to do one thing and one thing only, is to have you think about it nonstop. Have you think about the consequences? Have you think about the potential pitfalls, what it means to your life, your health, your family? Nonstop to think about the consequences of that. That is the battleground, and it's intentional. Because if you're thinking about it, it's the most important thing, period. I just ask you to accept that as a truism. And that's the world. See, peace from the world's perspective, like most everything, the world will co-opt almost everything of the kingdom of God and use it and twist it for their own purposes. And if I were to say peace to you about the world, then you would naturally think of the peace symbol. So there was ultimately a designer of that symbol. And this is just some history. I just found it. I thought it was interesting because these are interesting times. And the history of this peace symbol is this. It was first publicly used in the Easter weekend of 1958 in a demonstration against nuclear disarmament. And this is the words of the author of that symbol. And he says, I was in despair, deep despair, he wrote. I drew myself the representative of an individual in despair with hands, palm outstretched outwards and downwards in the manner of Goya's peasant before the firing squad. That's a painting. I formalized the drawing into a line and put a circle around it. It was ridiculous at first and such a puny thing. And I found it interesting that the very basis and the motivation for that symbol of peace was from a position of hopelessness. Hopelessness. And that's why many people, when they think of peace, what does peace mean? They, they would characterize it as the absence of conflict. But it's from a position and rooted in hopelessness. Easter weekend, 1958. For believers, for us, peace is far, is rooted in a place far from hopelessness. As I said, peace comes from somewhere, but peace comes from victory. It's peace from victory. Because there is a certainty of that perfect day, and we spent some time talking about peace from that perspective. So it is peace from victory. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, I said, these are all well-known scriptures, but when you put them together in frames of perspective, I think they're very useful. 
It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this talks about putting on the full armor of God. And the helmet of salvation, you've learned about this probably in children's church or Sunday school. And the concepts, context or a concept of a helmet of salvation is so basic. It protects your head. It protects your mind against anything that would disorient or destroy the believer, such as fear, uncertainty, or doubt. All highly weaponized to produce unbelief. And the helmet of salvation, I don't think many people think too much about it. It's like, I'm saved. That's, you've been there, done that. And that was my beginning, but it's not my present. And I would say, really? It's not your present. Oh, it is your present, and it is your future. See, Hebrews 4.12, again, you know this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Aside from the actual verse itself, you have to understand the context of that verse. And that context of the verse in Hebrews 3 and 4 is the context of the Israelites who were unable to enter the promised land, unable to enter the rest of God for one reason, unbelief. They had a path. It was all marked out. There was a destination that was defined for them, prepared for them as part of a covenant blessing of God, and they could not enter because of unbelief. They strayed from the path. And the helmet of salvation is particularly geared to help disentangle through the word of God soulish thoughts that will interfere with God's intention for your life. That's the path. See, the enemy is always looking to incite those soulish thoughts in opposition to the things of God. And the helmet of salvation, aside from being a cute, maybe felt item that you would put on a board to illustrate the armor of God, is your defense. Why is that? See, you start thinking about putting on the full armor of God and and I think about it, it's like, well, was it off? Why are you putting it on? Aside from salvation, once you're saved, now you actually are putting it on. Did it ever come off? I found that interesting anyway as I thought about it. See, the enemy would absolutely want you to take it off. And why would he want you to take it off? Or how, what would convince you to take off the helmet of salvation? I postulated a couple of reasons. I'm sure there's more. One reason could be that this great salvation somehow has lost its relevance to your everyday life. Possible. Because it is a great salvation, because that's what the word of God says, and that's the reality of it. There's another possibility that you took off the helmet of salvation 
you took it off to put another helmet on. Couple possibilities again. How about a crown of self righteousness? Galatians. How about a hat of self reliance? I'm sure you could pick more. The helmet of salvation should never have been taken off. Because it speaks about your secure destination, your future. This is your life. But let's wrap this up. Because I'm just talking about peace. And if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 13, talking about peace. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And that word worthy, the definition of it, says having the weight of another thing of like value. That's what it means. Having the weight of another thing of like value. So the only way you can understand your worth and whether you're worthy is to understand the weight of another thing of like value, which in this case is very simple, which is the price paid for you. The price paid for you individually, your family. This directly dictates whether you are deserving and now worthy to have the peace of God come upon your household. And there's one thing that is very clear, or there's many things that are very clear in Proverbs. In Proverbs, God abhors, abhors uneven scales. And I can assure you that he didn't overpay for you. He did not overpay. The value that he paid for your very life as part of this great salvation he did not overpay. He knew exactly what the value of your life was worth and he gladly paid the price for it. So if I were to say, are you worthy to have the peace from God rest upon your home? I know that's kind of an uncomfortable question for people to answer. But the very nature of the value that was paid for you must conclusively be answered by you with a yes. You are worthy. It's not much to do with your decision making. It's about the very value that he established for your life and your family. So we've been privileged, and I, again, I thank you for allowing us into your home today. And my only intention in talking about peace was to encourage and to pray for your home. Because I hope in my time just speaking about peace that in your mind you were actually have concluded for yourself, yes, that's right. My house, my household, my home is deserving of peace. And so, based upon that, I would just like to pray. So if you would, just 
close your eyes and we're just going to close out by praying. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you have made available. Peace from the very throne room of God. Peace from you. Now, Lord, literally given to the, uh, those of your affection, your children. And I pray just even into the atmosphere of every home that has opened themselves up to us this morning. And I just pray the very peace of God just resting in the very atmosphere in that home, changing the very atmosphere, aligning perspectives to yours. But the sufficiency of the price that has been paid and now deemed each of them worthy, worthy. And I say, let the peace of God now just rest on your people. And on every place that their feet would tread, let the peace of God rest, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for allowing us into your homes. I'm trusting that there's something that you can meditate on. I'm doing it myself. But we trust we'll be with you shortly. And for those, hope to see you midweek or perhaps next week. Thank you very much. Amen.